Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, impossible. Without faith, impossible. Hebrews 11, 1 to 7, and our verses, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach you by the study of your word, we pray that your spirit will guide us, guide our thoughts, and give us the ability to comprehend what we read here in your word. Help us to understand what it means to love you and to follow you in faith, to please you by the faith that we have. Grant us faith and help our unbelief, Lord. May we increase in faith to the glory of God. In Christ's name, amen. How is it that we can please God? How is it that we can please God? What does it take to please God? And why please Him in the first place? Why please Him in the first place? Isn't it better just to please ourselves? Why should we please God? These are some questions that are addressed here in our passage today, in verse 6 especially, which says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible. That also tells us that this question, or these questions we ask about faith, the nature of true faith, and what it means to approach God, is so important that it is impossible to please Him unless we understand what faith is. It's impossible to please God, which means that if God presents life and death before us, if He presents heaven and hell before us, if He presents the way of salvation and the way of condemnation before us, we better know what He's talking about. We better know how to please Him. Because if we don't know how to please Him, and we have the wrong conception, the wrong idea, the wrong teaching, the wrong upbringing, whatever our background has been, if we have the wrong concepts on these truths, then we are not going to please God, and there's no salvation for us. There's only condemnation, there's only death, there's only punishment. That's all that awaits. That's why when he says it's impossible, it should alert us, it should caution us, it should warn us to how important this truth is. Therefore, when we study this verse, let's understand it carefully and make sure we have true faith. True faith. He has described or given us a definition of faith in verse 1. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is what true faith is. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not seen. Faith is having this confidence, this conviction, assurance, confidence of the unseen world, of things promised that we do not yet experience. We do not yet experience to the full. We do not yet experience eternally without sin in the world, without evil and, and troubles in the world. We don't yet see it in the full. That's what faith is. Faith requires us to have this conviction, this assurance, this confidence in the unseen world. That's what true faith is. True faith is not based on merely physical circumstances or exclusively only physical circumstances. We have to go beyond the physical to the 
non-physical. We have to go beyond the visible to the invisible for there to be true faith. And not only is true faith there in terms of being that which is required to see the invisible world, but notice also in verse 2, it's not as though it's exclusive to us. The men of old gained approval by this. This is something that's true in every generation, not just in our generation, not just for a temporary period in human history or in God's plan of salvation. No, it is true universally. It's true throughout every generation. This is the way to please God, to have this kind of true faith. True faith also, according to verse 3, believes that God, the true God, is the creator of the universe. The God that we worship is the God who is the creator of the universe. Not any idol, not any petty deity, not two or three or 10,000 or 10 million or 333 million gods. No, those gods did not create the world. Those religions that purport that are false religions. The true God, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the universe. Our faith must be in accordance with that. Not only that, but in verses 4 and 5, he's told us about Abel and Enoch. Abel had true faith which manifested in his works. He had a true heart, he had true faith, and that true faith showed by his actions, by bringing the proper sacrifice. Those who do not bring the proper sacrifice, who withhold sacrifice, or bring the wrong kind of sacrifice, those people do not have true faith, according to verse 4 and the example of Abel. And then those who have true faith, according to verse 5, Enoch, Enoch walked with God in such a way, in such a close way, he had communion with God in such a way to obey him, to please him, to walk, in, to conduct his life in a manner that was worthy of claiming the name of Christ. That's the way Enoch lived. He lived in obedience to God. He had true faith, he had repentance, he had godliness in his life. That's how close he was to God. And so close that he did not see death. He was raptured out, he was taken up out of this world, translated quickly out of this world into heaven to be with God. That's the way Enoch was. His true faith showed in his godliness. We also notice in verse 5 that he said, Enoch pleased God. That's what our verse is going to explain some more. Verse 5 says that Enoch was pleasing to God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. You see the connection between verses 5 and 6. He's expanding on this necessity of pleasing God, just as Enoch did. And if we want to have this immortal and blessed and holy life, we must be like Enoch who pleased God. We must have faith like Enoch had to please God. That's the kind of true faith he's explaining. Some clarifications on what true faith is. Let's also notice that true faith is faith that originates with God. It is a gift of God. True faith is not something that begins in us. True faith is not something that we conjure up. True faith is not something that we muster up based on some strength or some residual goodness or strength or power that we have within us. True faith is not like that. True faith actually originates in heaven, comes down to individuals to whom God grants it and he grants it as a gift. Then we exercise that faith. It starts in heaven and then it comes down to the earth. How do we know this? Philippians 1, 6 says, Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began it, and God will perfect it. Philippians 1, 29, Philippians 1, 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is granted meaning it is a gift of God to have faith, to believe, as he says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace have you, been saved, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
that no one should boast. He says there that we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Acts 13, 48, many people were there, but it says, and as many as God had appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Acts 13, 48. And then in another passage, in Acts 16, the apostles are preaching and, and ministering from place to place, and they come to a riverside where there were some women gathered, and they went to the riverside to pray, to find a quiet place to pray. Paul and Luke, at least the two of them, they were there to pray, and they came across some women. And Paul begins to explain the gospel to them, and it says, among the women, one woman was saved, because it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The other women's hearts were not open, but God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, which is a response is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. This is the way that God gives salvation as a gift to some. Remember, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 says, not all have faith. Not all have true faith. So it's a gift. True faith is also eternal. It's lasting, everlasting. It is not temporary. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. We know that it is eternal based on Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That term assurance, the beginning of our assurance is the same as Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This faith, we must hold fast, and we have it from the beginning until the end, which means it's eternal. Hebrews 10.39, Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The faith that he means in the second part of verse 39 is faith that remains, it's steadfast, it's eternal, and it preserves the soul. 1 Peter 1.5 says that we are protected by the power of God through faith. We are protected by the power of God through faith to receive an inheritance laid up in heaven for us. That is the true faith that is uh, evidence in the Bible. Faith also, true faith, must be faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. True faith can only be that which is faith in Christ. If it's not faith in Christ, if it's faith in anyone else, anything else, and even in ourselves, it is not true faith. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty six that Moses regarded the reproach of Christ's greater riches. Moses put his faith in Christ. He put his faith in the reproach of Christ, which is the death and the humiliation of Christ. He put his faith in that because his faith had as its object Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior of the world. Moses believed in Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, for whom is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? For all of us, who put faith in him, whether in past generations, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, or throughout history after the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How important is this? First John 2, 22 tells us how important it is to have only faith in Christ, no one else. First John 2, 22, who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. True faith has to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And if we confess 
that Jesus is the Son of God, then we have God the Father, which means we have the favor of God the Father. But if we deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior, if we deny that, then we also deny God. We cannot, within Christianity, say, well, Jesus is our way of salvation, but Muslims have another way, Hindus have another way, and Buddhists have another way. There's different ways of salvation. We can't say that. We have to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, both for Jew and for Gentile, both for Jew and for Greek, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He said that himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. And his apostles well understood what he meant because they said in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation and no one else. For there is salvation, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. The, the apostles understood that Jesus was the only way of salvation. True faith also produces fruit. True faith follows with fruit. If faith is on the inside, and it's something that begins inside, in our heart, then how can people know that you have it unless it shows on the outside? How can people know that, that you have it unless it's on the outside? True faith has fruit. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works or fruit follow faith, according to Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 said that faith is a gift and salvation is a gift, a gift of God's grace, but after we possess it, it manifests itself. It demonstrates itself because we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works follow true faith. It's the fruit of true faith. James also, in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, he says, Brethren, what use is it if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? What use is it? What's the point? If a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that kind of faith, can that empty profession of faith, can that kind of faith save him? He says he believes but the rest of his life doesn't show it. Is he a real believer or not? And his answer is no. What, there's no use. That kind of faith cannot save. Furthermore, true faith increases. True faith increases. We have some of it upon our conversion, but it doesn't remain there. It doesn't remain stagnant. It doesn't remain dormant. It is a faith that is active and it increases. The apostles understood this in Luke 17, 5. They actually said to Jesus, increase our faith. They petitioned the Lord Jesus right there. They said, increase our faith. They wanted to have more faith. They had some, but they wanted more, which Jesus does give an answer to that and encourages them to have faith. Remember, there was the man, the father, whose son was demon-possessed in Mark chapter 9. And he wanted Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. And Jesus approaches, or they have this dialogue, and Jesus um, is seeing what's going on, and he says, the father says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The father had enough faith to approach the right person, the son of God, to heal his son. He understood enough about Jesus, but he wanted to know more about Jesus, wanted to experience more of the power of Jesus. So he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This shows that faith can be and needs to be increased. We have some, but then true faith will increase. It will not backtrack. It won't go backward. It will not backslide and backslide into destruction. That's not the way true faith is. True faith progresses, it increases, it grows day by day. True faith also is powerful. 
True faith is powerful. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, And when we presented the word of God's message to you, you did not receive it as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. The power of God transformed the Thessalonians from worshiping idols to worshiping the true God, from practicing immorality to practicing purity. This is the way true faith exhibited itself in the Thessalonians. But he says that it was true faith that was working by the word of God to transform them. It performs its work in you who believe. Performs its work in you who believe. Jesus said that if we had faith like a mustard seed, he taught us to have faith in God, and if we had faith like a mustard seed, we would be able <coughs> to move mountains. We, might, we would be able to say to a mountain, shift from here and go into the sea. That, of course, is a figure of speech of being able to do mighty things, great things that we would never even imagine we could do. Remember, it is the gospel, faith in the gospel that first changes us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel saves us. It has the power to transform a dead soul into a living soul. A soul that is stubborn and rebellious against the things of God to being tender and obedient to the things of God. That's the way true faith is. It is transformative. It is a powerful faith. Ephesians 6.16 also calls faith a shield. The shield of faith. First Thessalonians 5 8 calls it the breastplate of faith. It's a shield and it is a breastplate. A true faith then is a protector. It will protect us from the darts and the attacks of the enemy. True faith will keep and protect us. It will guard us until the very end. Like a shield and a breastplate. True faith is also accompanied by humility. True faith is also accompanied by humility. If there's no humility, then there is no true faith. James 2, verse 1. Brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in an attitude of personal favoritism. When favoritism is evident, then there is arrogance. When there is equality and treatment of people alike the same, then there is humility. David, in Psalm 131, David in one, Psalm 131 says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. David says to put hope in the Lord. That's what he did and he encouraged others to do. If we put hope in the Lord, that is the motivation of our faith, right? When we have hope in something unseen, that's where our faith resides. Faith resides and hope is a motivation to continue in the faith. And because David had it, he says he's not proud. He's not haughty. He's humble, therefore. So true faith is accompanied by humbleness or humility. Moreover, true faith speaks True faith speaks. It said in Hebrews 11, verse 4, about Abel, that his true faith still speaks. Doesn't it say that in Hebrews 11, verse 4? Though he is dead, he still speaks. It's a, that's an amazing thing. He's dead, but he still speaks. True faith speaks. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 says, I believed... Therefore, I spoke. I believed, therefore, 
I spoke. We believe, therefore we also speak. If we truly believe, we will speak up. We will tell people about what we believe. We will try to convince people about the ways of the gospel, to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ, to stop believing in themselves and believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. True faith speaks. In fact, we have great we have great stress and consternation when we don't speak. Jeremiah the prophet said, Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 20, verse 9, Jeremiah 29, he said, Now if I say, I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. He says it's like a burning fire in him. He has to speak up. He has to speak. He has to tell the truth. He cannot resolve himself to keep quiet and to keep his lips sealed for the rest of his life. No. True faith speaks up. And finally, and finally, true faith is based on the word of God. True faith is based on the word of God, not the word of men. It's based on the word of God, not on the word of men. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the apostle makes a clear distinction, a clear contrast between the word of men and the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He did not come the way that everybody else came, superiority of speech, uh, persuasive words of wisdom. He was not trying to be erudite and sophisticated and complicated and and uh, cerebral all the time with the people in order to make the people think that that man, he's, he's brilliant. That man, he's well-educated. That man, he's well-spoken. He's eloquent. I need to listen to him. They didn't, he didn't do it like that. He didn't do it because he knew the propensity of people to do that. They'll only listen to people who are handsome and beautiful, who have written a, a hundred books, or who have a, a large following. That's the way people are. But he said, no, I didn't come like that. I came with the word of God. I came with the spirit of God. I came with the power of God. I wanted you to believe in the truth of God, not on the wisdom of men, the mere temporary weak wisdom of men. No, not that. So it's based on the words of God, true faith. Well, then he continues in Hebrews eleven six to tell us about the impossibility of pleasing God apart from true faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Impossible to please Him. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Proverbs 15, 8 says, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. When wicked people present something to God, it's actually something abominable to God. He hates it. He detests things that wicked people bring to him. Proverbs 21, 27 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. Wicked people, even with good intentions, bring things to God, and God still considers those things an abomination. He hates that 
that which is wrought by wicked people, even if they have good intentions. But it's even worse if the wicked man brings something to God with wicked intentions. It's even worse. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? An example of this is clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, the people did not have faith. The people were trying to just bring something to God without truly believing in what they were doing. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah clearly explains God's attitude towards those people. Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. God says he's not going to answer their prayers. He's not going to listen to their prayers. They have hands full of bloodshed. They bring these offerings, but they combine these sacrifices with sin. Notice verse 13. He calls them worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination. New moon, Sabbath, calling of assemblies. These were special festivals. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. How is it that you can put sin and sacrifice together and think that I'll be pleased with it? It's impossible. It's impossible to combine sin with sacrifice. Instead, we have to have faith plus Sacrifice. That is the only way to please God. And who had that in our passage in Hebrews 11? Who had true faith with the true sacrifice? It was Abel. And in Hebrews 11, verse 4, Abel had true faith with the true sacrifice. Now, when he says impossible, we have to also understand our natural condition. What is our natural condition? Condition. When we're born into the world, if we don't have true faith when we're born into the world, or when we're 5 or 10 years old, or 15, 20, however old we are, if we don't have true faith, what is our condition, and why is the gift of true faith so necessary? Our natural condition is first explained in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities." He tells us here, he describes for us here in verse 6, all of us are unclean, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Does that not remind us of Proverbs 15, 8 and 21, 27 that says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination? What we think is good and righteous that appears to be good and righteous is actually unclean and like a filthy garment. We wither like a leaf, like a brown Parched leaf, we wither, and the leaf is blown away by the wind. No one calls on God's name. No one arouses himself to take hold of God. God has hidden his face from us and has delivered us over to the power of our iniquities. That's the way we are normally, naturally, without conversion, without true faith in Christ. This is the way we are. Romans also, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, Romans 3, 9 to 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
Jews and Greeks, that means every person, every human being, Jews and Greeks, were all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. None of us are righteous, he says. None of us understand. None of us seek for God. We all turn aside. We all are useless. None of us does good. Not even one. Did he make his point? I think so. He made his point that this is the way we are when we are naturally brought into this world. That's why we need to have true faith to make it possible to please God. This is why it's impossible. Further, what does it mean to please God? Remember, we first see this word in verse 5 with Enoch. He was pleasing to God. This is why he took uh, another verse here to explain to us what he means by pleasing God. He says that Enoch was pleasing to God because Enoch was living a life seeking to do the will of God. He wanted to know what God thought, what God said about every subject, about every topic, and then with diligence, he would find out what that is and then obey. He would obey. That's the way Enoch lived his life. That's why he was not and did not see death. Enoch was this way. He wanted in every way to please God. But pleasing God is not just for Enoch. Ephesians 5.10 tells us that we ought to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. What pleases God? Not what pleases ourselves, but what pleases God. After all, didn't we used to please ourselves? Didn't we used to just desire to do our own will? Whatever our whims were, whatever we wanted to do throughout the day, isn't that the way that we used to be? But now that we're in Christ, we're not like that anymore. For example, Titus chapter 3 explains who we were and who we are now. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 3, 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yes, we used to be rebels against authorities, but now we are ready for every good deed. We used to malign, we used to be contentious, ungentle, we did not show consideration, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spent our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We were that way. But that God then changed us. God intervened. God saw the gap, and He bridged the gap. His own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him, Isaiah says. That's what God did in our life. And when he did that, by his kindness and, toward his, and his love toward us, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not because we did some good deeds, not because we were doing righteous deeds. He did not save us on that basis. He saved us because he washed us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit. And he gave the Holy Spirit to us who produced faith in us, who produced repentance in us, who taught us to love Jesus Christ, and as a result, we are justified. As a result, we have the hope of eternal life. We are inheritors of eternal life. That's what God made us to be. He changed us and caused us 
gave us a a desire to please him. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your, your desires which wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yes, even in the local church, people can fall prey to these sins of desiring things and quarreling and not being a friend of God but being an enemy of God and friend of the world in the local assembly. But if we do the will of God, if we desire the will of God, then God will give us, he says. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. If we ask God, doing the will of God, he'll give us his good gifts. The world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's do the will of God. Let's seek to please him and not be tempted by the world to live according to the world. There were some people in John 12, 43, who loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Not for us. If we have true faith, we will seek to desire to please God. Not ourselves and not others. Furthermore, he tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 6, he says that, For he who comes to God must believe that he is. If we're going to approach God, we must believe that he is. Now, that is a simple statement, but it is full of truth. When he says we must believe that he is, he certainly at least means that we must believe in the existence of God. Otherwise, it's foolish. And those who don't believe in the existence of God, they are fools, according to the Bible. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. The wicked, he calls him. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Therefore, we must believe that he is and that he exists. The true God exists. But furthermore, we need to believe that he is the creator. He's already told us in Hebrews 11.3 that by faith we believe that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. God is the one who created the universe. Our God created the universe. Not the other gods of false religions and cults. Not their God, but the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis to Revelation. He is the God, the true God, who is the creator of the whole world. John chapter 1 identifies Christ as the personal agent who created all things. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from Him. Jesus Christ is the one who created all things. We must believe this about God. Furthermore, it's not enough just to believe in Father, Son, and Spirit, to believe that Jesus created the world, which which are all right and good. But when you think about who God is, the true God in comparison to the idols of the world, the false gods of the world, the God of the Bible is omnipotent. The God of the Bible is omniscient. The God of the Bible is omnipresent. The God of the Bible is eternal. No one created him. No God existed before our God. He has always existed. He is perfect in all of his attributes. 
perfect in all of his attributes, whether it is love, whether it is wrath, whatever it, his attributes are, he is perfect in all of those, without any blemish, without any sin, without any defect, no weakness, nothing. And further, when he says that we must believe that he is, we must come to God on his terms, right? All along, he's been teaching throughout this letter, we don't come to God on our terms. We don't say, like a business deal, okay, let's sit down at the table. You sit across from me at the, at the table and we'll strike a deal. Let's dialogue, let's talk about it. Let's weigh the pros and cons. We'll see how you're gonna benefit. We'll see how I'm gonna benefit. And we just strike a deal sitting at the table and then we'll shake hands and sign our name on the dotted line, right? No, that's not the way it is. When we come to him, we come to him on his terms. The Bible teaches us all over the place. Must come to God on his terms. That's why the Bible is written. If the Bible is written, it's not written so that we might come to God on our terms. It's written to come to God on his terms. Come the way he expects us to come. He also teaches us in verse 6 that we must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder. Notice here that when we think of our God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we consider who this God is, we have to think of him in good terms, in fatherly terms, in loving terms. He is one who is kind. He is beneficent. He's very loving. He's got all of the perfections of good things that he has, and he gives them to us. He bestows them upon us. Don't we have to believe that to come to him in faith? Who would want to come to God unless he knew that God would give us good things, nice things, things that we want, things that are good for us and beneficial to us? Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yes, he will be kind. Yes, he will be a rewarder. Yes, he will give us good gifts. And the most important good gift he gives us is the first one, the Holy Spirit, to transform us and then to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit. This concept of a reward has in its fulfillment the presence of God. The fulfillment, the greatest reward we could have is to be with Him. Revelation chapter 21 teaches us about this marvelous future. This marvelous future and reward. Revelation 21 verse 3. 21-3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. From the beginning to the end, God is a rewarder. He gives us his Holy Spirit as a pledge of his presence. And then for all eternity, we will be in his presence forever. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised these words, John 14, 1 to 3. He promised these uh, words, the, these blessings to us, we who believe in him. He will come again to receive us, to be with him forever 
and ever. Those who lack faith don't look at God in that way. Those who lack faith, who lack true faith, do not look at God that way. They, they don't look at him that way. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, remember, in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also the tree of life. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, when they were tempted by the serpent, the devil, when they were tempted in Genesis chapter 3, why is it that they let this sin, this evil, this disobedience come to the forefront of their mind? Why did they not, though they were there in the proximity of the tree of life, why did they not put their eyes on the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And why is it that she took from the fruit of that tree and ate and gave to her husband who was with her and he ate? Why is it that they did that? Because they didn't have true faith when they were being tempted. They did not have true faith to put their eyes on the tree of life, on the goodness of God, on the abundance of God, and everything else, all the other trees that they could have eaten in the garden. They didn't put their eyes on any of those things. They put their eyes just on that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they brought sin in, in the world. We shouldn't be like that. We have sin, and it makes it even more difficult for us. And since it's more difficult for us, all the more do we need to depend on the power of God. All the more do we need the grace of God. We need to pray. We need to plead with God. Help us, help us, help us day by day. We need Him so that we not repeat the same sin as Adam and Eve did. We need to be in Christ every day. Not in Adam, but to be in Christ in the way that we live. That's the way in which we need to look at God as a rewarder. By faith. He has good things for us, unimaginable good things, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, that which has not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says. That's what he has prepared for us. And finally, he says that this reward, or that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, the New American Standard Bible that I use says, who seek him. The King James Version will say, diligently seek him. And that, I believe, is a better translation of this Greek word. Those who diligently seek him. Those who search him out. Those who take effort, an extra effort, to find him. This is what it means. This is the way we ought to look at it. Notice that... Having this reward, coming to God, having true faith, is not a passive thing. It's not passivity. It's not dormancy. It's not being uh, uh, static or status quo in our Christian life. It is moving ahead. And in fact, it's moving ahead in a great search. It's a great search. This is the way he describes it. It is for those who seek him. Those who seek him. The disciples asked Jesus in Luke 13, 22. They said, in Luke 13, 22, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And what is Jesus' answer to that? Strive to enter by the narrow gate. He said, strive to enter by the narrow gate. He did not say it's going to be an easy and breezy Christianity to get into that narrow gate. He said strive, which means effort. It takes toil to get there. If you, you will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your hearts. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. It's not enough to have a part of your heart. You, we cannot be half-hearted in our pursuit of the Christian life. It has to be with the whole heart. Now as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with the willing heart. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. First Chronicles 28.9 Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 
If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. God says, I love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. Proverbs 8.17 Remember the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south. In 1 Kings chapter 10, she lived in a distant country. She heard about Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon, which is the gospel. She heard about the gospel or wisdom of Solomon, and she traveled a great distance from a foreign country to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That's how diligent she was. And she did not come empty-handed. She came with a retinue. She came with a big caravan of people and lots of products to come to hear the gospel from the mouth of Solomon. That's what she did. She did not come casually. She came with great effort to hear the wisdom of the gospel. We should do the same. If we're seeking God diligently, the Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3, 16. 1 Peter 2, 3. Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That was Hebrews 5, 14 and 1 Peter 2, 3 that we need to do this in a diligent way to seek God by means of the Word of God. Seek God by means of the Word of God. Furthermore, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, he tells us how urgent this is, how necessary and urgent this is. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He puts before us the example of Christ and he calls it a race. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter, he went before us, he made it all the way, and we who are joined to him, we will also make it all the way. But then he exhorts us by telling us in verse 3, he says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured, even though he endured such hostility by sinners. And that has not yet happened to us. It has not happened to us. If someone calls us a name, a bad name, if someone doesn't look at us, somebody doesn't say hello, somebody stops being our friend, somebody isolates us or marginalizes us, are we going to turn away from Christ? What are we going to do? He says here, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. No, cling to Christ, cling to him, search for him, seek him, follow him in all that we say and do. 2 Timothy 2.3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Yes, he says, we ought to be good soldiers of Christ. We not, ought not to entangle ourselves in the affairs of everyday life. Do we let sports, do we let music, 
and movies and food and work and anything else get in the way, consume us? He says here, do not be entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Don't let that happen. Compete as an athlete. Compete according to the rules, the way God says. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Diligently seek him. The Christian life is characterized by a diligent, devoted, enthusiastic, zealous pursuit of God and the things of God. Did you not know that I had to be about the things of my Father? Jesus said. Let's be the same. Let's have true faith. Let's approach God with this kind of belief that He is a good God and that it is worth seeking Him, worth searching diligently for Him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the true faith that is here. We pray that this true faith increases in each of us, that it abounds, it produces fruit. May we understand that when we approach you, we approach you as one who is great, powerful, good, loving, kind, merciful, gracious. May this be our motivation to pursue you and to come to you with this true faith. And would, would you also grant to us the power we need, the insight we need, and remove all of the distractions of the world so that we might search you diligently. We might come to you with the great desire to love you, to please you, to be fully devoted in every part of our life. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.